This e-multiple sclerosis review program is presented by DKB Med Radio. In a prospective observational cohort of 57 relapsing and secondary progressive MS patients, de-escalating the rituximab dose from 1,000 to 500 milligrams every six months did not result in clear recurrence of disease activity over a follow-up of about 12 months. Mitigating DMT infection risk. Welcome to E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. What do clinicians know about the safety concerns of the high and moderately efficacy therapies they're prescribing for their patients? The vaccinations recommended for the general population have different effects on individuals with MS. What's known about B-cell depletions and S1P modulators and side effects like PML and opportunistic infections? To answer those questions, we're joined today by two clinicians from the Cleveland Clinic's Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health in Las Vegas. Dr. Lei Hua is an Associate Professor of Neurology and Director of the Multiple Sclerosis Section. Dr. Ariba Siddiqui is a Fellow in Multiple Sclerosis and Neuroimmunology. For our guest disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, emsreview.org and select the volume five, issue six link. I'm Bob Busker, managing editor of the Multiple Sclerosis Review. Dr. Hua, Dr. Siddiqui, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for having us. Happy to be here. This is an especially important topic, so let's move right into it with our first learning objective, identify the infection risks associated with B-cell therapies and describe appropriate mitigation strategies. So start us out in the clinic, if you would please, Dr. Siddiqui, with a patient scenario. Sure. So here we have a 49-year-old woman with clinically and radiographically stable multiple sclerosis over the past three years. She's been on standard dosing of B-cell therapy, and she now presents to clinic for a routine follow-up. A patient who has been stable for three years on a B-cell therapy. Uh, from an infection risk mitigation standpoint, what are the most important questions you want to get answered? Yeah, so there are a couple of things. One, it is very important to determine the frequency and severity of incurred infections at every visit. Uh, patients may not often volunteer this information, so it's important to proactively ask about it. Specifically, uh, patients should be asked about their type of infections and if they have been formally diagnosed. So, for instance, a urine culture that confirms a urinary infection, as opposed to a patient's perception of UTI symptoms that self-resolved. And other than that, if they've required hospitalizations or antibiotic treatments for these diagnosed infections and the duration and frequency of infections. So Dr. Hua, let's assume you ask this patient, what does she report? So this patient in particular reports that she's had two instances of pneumonia over the past six months including that she was diagnosed with COVID-19 pneumonia, uh, which in turn required a brief hospitalization for respiratory distress. Her MS medications, how likely do you think it is that that's what made her more susceptible to COVID-19 infection? So B-cell therapies, including rituximab and ocrelizumab, can certainly increase the risk of acquiring upper respiratory infections. Particularly since the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen an increased not only in the risk, but also in the severity of COVID-19 infections um, in our studies. 
I wanted to highlight two specific studies. So specifically, in a large Italian registry of 844 persons with MS, anti-CD20 therapy was associated with a 2.37 increased risk of severe COVID-19 infections after adjusting for factors such as region, biological sex, age, progressive MS course, disease duration, BMI, comorbidities, and recent steroid use. In a second registry, the COVID-MS registry in the United States, there was 1,626 persons with MS evaluated, and rituximab use was associated with a 4.5 increased odds of hospitalization for COVID-19, while ocrelizumab use was associated with a 1.63 increased odds of hospitalization compared to no disease-modifying therapy use. Well, further evaluation of this patient, Dr. Siddiqui, how would you proceed? So we would start by obtaining labs, particularly a complete blood count with a lymphocyte subset, and also evaluate for hypogammaglobulinemia with IgM and IgG levels. It's important to keep in mind that as opposed to IgG levels, low IgM levels do not appear to be associated with serious consequences. IgG levels, however, have been associated with an increased risk of infections in people treated with rituximab. However, there is a lack of real-world data on how to proceed with anti-CD20 therapy with hypogammaglobulinemia-related infections, but clinicians could consider adding intravenous immunoglobulin therapy, similar to recommendations for hypogammaglobulinemia as a result of anti-CD20 therapy for hematological malignancy. How would you counsel regarding further therapy with ocrelizumab? So I'd like to quote um, an important study here. So in a phase two study of ocrelizumab, median time to B-cell repopulation, um, essentially to the lower limit of normal, which is at least 80 CD19 cells per microliter, after the last 600 milligram infusion was around 72 weeks, which suggests that dosing intervals may be prolonged beyond the standard every six-month dosing. Limited studies, however, have been conducted to evaluate alternative dosing regimens for B-cell therapies, and most trials have actually evaluated rituximab. So for instance, um, in a prospective observational cohort of 57 relapsing and secondary progressive MS patients, de-escalating the rituximab dose from 1,000 to 500 milligrams every six months did not result in clear recurrence of disease activity over a follow-up of about 12 months. However, at least two retrospective cohort studies have evaluated ocrelizumab redosing based on CD19 B-cell count, and the cutoff used in these studies has been redosing when CD19 cells repopulate to either 1% of total lymphocyte count or at least 10 cells per microliter. And while these studies are small, this can be considered an effective strategy to actually reduce risk of infections. Um, these studies, again, demonstrate no relapses on MRI activity with personalized dosing. Nevertheless, a thorough risk discussion should be undertaken with the patient, and possibility of disease recurrence should be thoroughly addressed. Well, thank you, Dr. Siddiqui. Uh, Dr. Hua, I want to go back and talk about COVID-19 for a moment, because I want to ask you about vaccination. Is it appropriate for patients on B-cell therapy to get vaccinated? And how strongly do you or don't you recommend it? Great question, Bob. So vaccinations can reduce the risk and severity of COVID-19 infections in patients. And thus, we recommend the vaccines to 
all of our patients who suffer from MS. Now, while most patients have been open to COVID-19 vaccinations, we do have some who are hesitant. So for these individuals, we want to reassure them that the vaccines have been well tolerated. In fact, studies have shown that the adverse reactions seen in persons with MS are similar to those seen in the general public, and these are typical immune responses such as fever, headache, and myalgias. More importantly, we want to reassure them that vaccines are not associated with the increased risk of relapse, but that they may feel a transient worsening of their MS symptoms because of the inflammatory response. Despite this, the overall benefits of vaccine outweigh the risk, and so we absolutely would encourage our patients to get vaccinated. Now, the other flip side of the um, concern with B-cell therapies is that there is a potential reduction in vaccine efficacy for those who are on B-cell therapies. So while we still advocate for those who uh, are on B-cell therapy to, to get their vaccines, they still need to be cautious uh, in terms of reducing their risk for COVID and using um, interventions such as masking or social distancing when appropriate. Now, because of the attenuated vaccine response, there are some suggestions that the timing of the vaccine may help improve the responses. So in our clinic, we've actually recommended that um, uh, persons who have MS and are on B-cell therapies, that they wait till after 12 weeks after their most recent infusion to get the vaccines, or at least um, uh, get the vaccines four weeks prior to their next infusion. Well, thank you, doctors, for a very interesting presentation. So let's revisit our discussion in light of our learning objective, identify the infection risks associated with B-cell therapies, and describe appropriate mitigation strategies. What are the key things you'd want our learners to take away from our discussion? Dr. Siddiqui? Right, Bob. So it's important to understand that B-cell therapy can increase risk of upper respiratory infections, and it's important to assess for infection frequency at every clinic visit. And in a patient with frequent infections, clinicians could consider an alternative dosing regimen, such as an extended interval dosing regimen based on CD19 counts. With ocrelizumab in particular, CD19 cell count can help guide redosing based on levels reported in some small-scale studies. And again, vaccination remains a key prevention strategy to reduce COVID-19 risk. Vaccination timing is critical to address, given that there can be an attenuation of humoral response associated with B-cell therapies. Well, thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Lehua and Dr. Reba Siddiqui from Cleveland Clinic in just a moment. It really is a very simple question. Your CME, CEU credits, have you got all that you need? because they're still available without charge from eMultiple Sclerosis Review. It's the information you need to improve patient outcomes, combined with how that new information can be applied to clinical practice. eMultiple Sclerosis Review delivers expert clinical advice and analysis. It's accredited for nurses as well as physicians, and all programs and credits are provided without charge. Find what you need at eMultipleSclerosisReview.org. Welcome back to our eMultiple Sclerosis Review program. We've been speaking with Dr. Lehua and Dr. Ariba Siddiqui from Cleveland Clinic's Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health in Las Vegas 
about identifying infectious risks associated with B-cell therapies and appropriate mitigation strategies. Let's turn now to our second learning objective. Describe the risk of lymphopenia associated with various DMTs and the related risks of infection. Uh, so if you would please, Dr. Siddiqui, take us back to the clinic with another patient scenario. Sure, Bob. So after exploring disease-modifying therapy options with a newly diagnosed 33-year-old woman with MS, the decision is made to start a fumarate given the ease of oral administration. And she asks about the expected safety concerns related to dimethyl fumarate use. Looking at this from an infection's perspective, what are the most important considerations in counseling a patient about the risks with dimethyl fumarate? Right, Bob. So dimethyl fumarate use can be associated with lymphocyte depletion, and it's important for clinicians to recognize that a decrease in both CD4 and CD8 memory T cells can be observed, and absolute lymphocyte counts can be clinically used to monitor for this. While infrequent, fumarate use can also cause a multitude of opportunistic infections involving both CNS and extra CNS sites, and these infections may not necessarily correlate with the degree of lymphopenia. However, it's important to keep in mind that the risk of PML associated with fumarate use has been shown to correlate with selective depletion of CD8 lymphocytes in particular. And specifically, persistent, which is at least six months, of moderate to severe depletion of absolute lymphocyte counts, which would be defined as less than 800 cells per microliter, may predispose to developing PML, which is why it's important to closely monitor absolute lymphocyte count every six to 12 months on all patients who are on fumarates. If a patient on fumarate therapy does develop persistent severe lymphopenia, Dr. Hua, how do you recommend the clinician proceed with further management? So as Dr. Siddiqui mentioned, uh, absolute lymphocyte counts of 800 cells per microliter or less that persist for more than six months will warrant consideration for switching disease-modifying therapies. So prior to starting a new disease-modifying therapy, however, we would want to allow for the lymphocyte counts to reconstitute or normalize before beginning a new disease-modifying therapy. Now, lymphocyte counts may normalize within 8 to 16 weeks, but this could potentially be longer if there is more severe lymphopenia, uh, and alternatively shorter if this is a mild period. And that vulnerable period when they're not on medications is something that's really critical to address with the patients, uh, particularly if a longer washout period is needed, then a patient may need um, uh, to strategize about uh, whether or not we use steroids should they have a relapse during this time period that they're not on any medications. If we need to start disease-modifying therapy sooner, um, then there may be this compounded effect with the lymphopenia um, starting a new therapy while they're still lymphopenic uh, because there is now multiple effects on the immune system, which can either even further increase the risk of infections. And those are really critical things that we want to discuss with the patients in terms of understanding what to do during this vulnerable period. Dr. Hua? Are there other DMTs that could predispose to lymphopenia, and do they have similar safety considerations? Yeah, absolutely. So our S1P1 modulators can also similarly cause lymphocyte depletion, uh, which also warrants close monitoring of the lymphocyte counts. 
Uh, S1P modulators are associated with opportunistic infections, such as herpes virus and cryptococcal infections. And while rare, uh, S1P1 modulators have also been associated with risk of PML. However, in contrast to the fumarates, um, the risk of PML is not correlated with the degree of lymphopenia. In general, uh, the clinical trials of the S1Ps discontinued uh, drug when absolute lymphocyte counts fell below 200 cells per microliter. So in clinical practice, we are worried about uh, lymphocyte counts below this level because that means that it's a uh, safety territory that is unknown. Now, there's alternate dosing strategies that have been employed looking um, at uh, dosing less frequently, such as every other day dosings with fengolimod. Um, and these studies have been really small, and there's no clear established benefit in terms of improved safety outcomes, uh, nor has there been studies showing similar protection in uh, efficacy of reduction of relapses. Despite not having real data or guidelines, this strategy is commonly used in clinical practice to allow for more acceptable ALC levels while allowing the continued benefit of S1P therapy. Excellent presentation, doctors. Our learning objective is describe the risk of lymphopenia associated with various DMTs and related risks of infection. Uh, Dr. Siddiqui, what are the most important things our listeners need to know? So it's important for clinicians to keep in mind that fumarates and S1P modulators alike can cause depletion of lymphocyte counts and absolute lymphocyte count can be used clinically to monitor for this depletion. If ALC drops below 800 cells per microliter for at least six months uh, with fumarate use or below 200 cells per microliter for S1Ps, clinicians could consider discontinuation of disease-modifying therapy it's important to keep in mind that prolonged persistent lymphopenia is associated with an increased risk of PML with fumarate use. S1P modulators can also predispose to PML, but the risk might be independent of the degree of lymphopenia. And it's very important before employing an alternative or personalized dosing regimen or pursuing a washout period for any disease-modifying therapy to allow for reconstitution of lymphocytes, it's important to ensure that patients understand that there is a potential risk of clinical and radiographic relapse that may warrant steroid treatment um, if indicated. Dr. Hua, I want to give you the last word on the topic here, because we know that there's not a lot of hardcore evidence backing up a lot of things about mitigating DMTs. But tell us from your own clinical perspective, what are some of the key things you found in practice? So uh, overall, for any patients on any disease-modifying therapy, it's always important to ask patients about if they're having any infections that might be treated by um, other healthcare personnel, such as their primary care physicians. Um, we always want to monitor relevant labs for infection risk and consider alternate dosing uh, uh, strategies uh, if appropriate. Now, while there isn't clear evidence of different strategies that we can employ, um, using our best clinical judgment on available data, which can either be extrapolated from other disease states and or understanding of the mechanism of actions of our DMTs, um, uh, pharmacokinetic and ph pharmacodynamics data can always serve in the meantime, serving as the kind of the art of medicine that we all do until we actually have the data to back up our patients. Uh, again, 
uh, patient safety is of utmost importance while we're trying to strive for a reduction of disability, reduction of relapses to uh, improve quality of life. From Cleveland Clinic's Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health in Las Vegas, Dr. Ariba Siddiqui, Dr. Lei Hua, thank you both for joining us in today's e-multiple sclerosis review program. Thank you, Bob. Um, it's certainly been a pleasure, and thank you for taking the initiative to discuss this very important topic so we can continue delivering care safely to our patients with MS. Thank you again. It's been our absolute pleasure to join you and kind of discuss these topics that are near and dear to our hearts. Um, and we hope that you take away something useful to care for your patients. For eMultiple Sclerosis Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at eMultipleSclerosisReview.dkbmed.com. eMultiple Sclerosis Review is supported by educational grants from Biogen Incorporated and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med, LLC.